Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel. And today we get to spend the hour speaking with Ana Rosas about her new book, Abrazando el Espíritu, Bracero Families Confront the U.S.-Mexico Border, published by the University of California Press in 2014. Ana Rosas is an associate professor in the departments of History and Chicano slash Latino Studies at the University of California, Irvine. Her research and teaching interests include Chicano history, comparative immigration history, ethnic history, oral history, gender studies, and film and media studies. Professor Rosas is the recipient of a number of awards and honors, including the Organization of American Historians Huggins Quarles Award and the University of California Irvine's Community and Civic Engagement Program's Engaged Faculty Award. Hello, Anna, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. Hi, thank you for this invitation and for that wonderful introduction. Thank you so much. Definitely. Thank you again for your time. And I was wondering if you would uh, begin our interview by just saying a few words about yourself and telling us maybe a bit about where you were raised, uh, where you went to school, and and how you became interested in pursuing a career as a historian and professor. Um, I was raised in South Central Los Angeles, and a lot of what I think now, looking back, was very, very formative to my education growing up in South Central Los Angeles, was very much um, a very concerted effort on my family's part to always prioritize my education and making sure that I was attending schools and, you know, participating in school in ways that were very productive towards not giving up or not losing sight of how interested I was in learning and how much I loved to learn from the different teachers I was working with and the different programs I was a part of. Uh, they really made it possible for me in ways in which now, thinking back, they push themselves to, like, have really long days, really long commutes. But I think they always understood that I was always drawn to very much learning and very much um, learning from people that were invested in our community. So a lot of my earliest mentors were always teachers who saw, like, the promise, believed in the promise of the part of the color in a community that, for the most part, is, continues and at that time was widely neglected right. when it came to the education we were offered. So to have, uh, you know, all the time, like, really the rapport with, like, very committed teachers, that was always very foundational to the kinds of things I was able to do after graduating from middle school, high school. Um, so I think it was all, like, when I think back to how I was raised, there was this very concerted effort on their part to not give up on that as priority, that time that I spent working with different teachers and different students and across um, divides, meaning I attended mostly predominantly African-American schools as a Latino family. Mm-hmm. That was something that you know, was very, in some ways, sensitive to actually undertake because at the time there was just no sense of Latinos being very much here or as people who wanted to live here and to be community members. 
So I took a lot of breaking ground of sorts, and my right, right. and my friends always very positive in that way of seeing that as worthwhile and that education was pivotal for being very much comfortable and very much um, ready to take on the task of working community wherever you know I was attending school, despite like everything being so new to even faculty, teachers, or students. So. I remember that to be very formative, the kinds of things I then pursued as an undergraduate at the University of Southern California. I completed a history and an American Studies and Ethnicity degree while there, mm-hmm. and I think that the professors I had a chance to work with there were the most um, influential in my decision to pursue research as a way of continuing to grow in my investment to my right. community and what I wanted to actually share with my family. I know that I'd never, like kept my family at a distance when it comes to the research I undertake. They've always been very critical and not only informing and being influential with regards to the questions I was asking in papers I was writing or even in the kinds of like extra activities I did that were about implementing conceptually what was offered in courses. A lot a lot of what they lived as people who work, you know, long days in factories and long days as for the most part disconnected from their families in Mexico. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. All of that was very formative to what I did as a student to do the coursework and the kinds of um, different service work I did for USC or on behalf of USC and the community around it, which is South Central Los Angeles. So, so I think for me, writing the book and then turning into a PhD program as a student, like that, that being a part of my everyday, it became an extension of all of that. A lot of like what I saw actually happen as a result of working hard in schools, um, elementary, high schools that surround USC, uh, working hard with them to have curriculum that reflected like a diversity and a sense of inclusivity when it comes to what we mean by the history of labor or the history of immigration or the history of the women who labor in the context of Los Angeles. Like all of that was always like front and center when I was striving to college as undergraduate. And it just matured into a more serious treatment of my family's um, relationship with the United States and Mexico as experienced when I was growing up. So, mm-hmm. for instance, a lot of my, or most of, not all of my family is still in Mexico. Hardly any of them decided to migrate to the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was at the core of what, infra- what framed Carrasando um, el Espíritu, was that search for, like, understanding why, like, Growing up, I didn't have a grandmother or an uncle or aunt to actually visit because right. at that time, family was undocumented. So in uh-huh. essence, even uh-huh. the, you know, the right to be able to cross legally, all this was not there. So in essence, we very much grew at a distance from our extended family until we were well, well until I was well into my teens and we had a chance to legalize our status. But those kinds of tensions with regards to how do you talk to your family about that, like their decisions to migrate and your extended family's decision to resolutely not do it. Mm-hmm. Like, that, that was a core of what informed, like, my sense of the urgency of, like, really being historical with regards to how, how to understand that anxiety and, and why my parents were so hesitant to answer that question as to why that was the case. Um, I was always cautioned or alerted to actually go to my family in Mexico and ask them and learn from them, like, why they were not a part of our lives in that way or why they decided not to migrate or why right, didn't they right. idealize immigration, right? Right. So that was at the core. And those questions were not just questions that I thought that's very provocative. I just thought, no, that would help me to really understand, like, the full context of the kinds of decisions my parents have made over time and raising me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so it's a, I guess it's a combination of things, kind of like the optimism 
and the relentlessness that I saw in my teachers growing up, mm-hmm. the optimism mm-hmm. of my parents. So even though I was very much a person who, um, for the most part, really loved school, but we didn't quite know what to do with that other than to get good grades and to right. give back. And so for it to be like a launching pad towards being a professor and teaching in ways that I found were very hopefully in, um, in lightness or in some ways trying to follow up on what, you know, my professors at USC actually made accessible to me with a lot of heart and with a lot of, um, I guess you could say at the time, that was very risky, you know, to invest in students in the way that um, Professor Sanchez at USC did with a lot of us because he really, like, did not set limits or boundaries to what we consider to be very important about being a Chicano, a Chicana historian mm-hmm. in the context of oftentimes a very conservative intellectual climate. So... In that way, you know, I, I feel like it's a combination of all of these people, like, really working hard for you to be, like, the best you can be with what they've decided to share with you, you know, as lived experience, as knowledge traditionally conceptualized in the classroom. So, I mean, it's been all of that that paved the way, but South Central continues to be home, and right. I still continue to see it as, you know, the audience that matters to me most of the times mm-hmm. with regards to how will my work resonate with them. Am I being true to the kinds of politics that really operate when people are striving to connect with each other truthfully and meaningfully? So that, that's been formative to my like, writing this history and now sharing it. Thank you for sharing that. And it, it really intrigues me because it, it, it seems to me then, um, or I guess this is another way of phrasing a, a question, but it seems that then your, your trajectory towards becoming an academic and, and becoming a historian then is has been incredibly influenced, as you mentioned, by your lived experience. And so in some way, do you see this career choice as a way to, um, you know, expand or provide similar opportunities and encouragement like that you had growing up and in your formative years, uh, both, you know, and from throughout your educational process, but particularly in, in higher education that you wanted to create these, these modes and venues for other people, uh, you know, for other students that were coming up? Kind of want to emulate that experience or reproduce that experience you happen for you had for others. That's been kind of like a guiding height with my teaching, or even like for everything I have been able to do at the University of California, Irvine, or when asked to facilitate sessions that are meant to like energize people about how they approach really um, igniting a sense of commitment for history and its promise, and how useful it is, and how in some ways um, creative it can be and that collective endeavor to really learn from it and to have it as an everyday way of connecting with each other, common ground. That's right. been very formative in my teaching and even in the kinds of work I encourage my students to pursue beyond courses they take uh, with me. Um, a lot of what I inspire um, students to try to really own as priority is like to really look inwards and to develop uh, frameworks or develop projects that entail like Making making sure that they're connecting wholeheartedly with a wider community, and right, oftentimes right. that includes families. You know, it's very hard for them to talk about what it means to like excel as a student, invest in ethnic studies um, coursework or research, and oftentimes that research um, has to or investigates the experience of their own family. Mm-hmm. It's very hard for them to navigate how to go back home and talk about that. How do you right. go back home and actually like? get people excited and energetic about the new support in a way that they underestimate as important, you know. So when I'm when oftentimes in the classroom or outside of that with regards to different kinds of um, civic engagement projects, 
part of what I always carry with me is like how how um, invaluable it is to make people really understand that they are very much knowledgeable people that they have so much to mm-hmm. share. You know that um, we all have to learn from each other, irrespective of our experience going into a meeting, or experience going into a session, or our discussion of history needs to truly be historical. It's to you know, full account of all of what has marked the different decisions your family has made, and the more you have made in relationship to them. Right. So, abrazando el espíritu is very much about that family um, experience, not so much the Brasero program conceptualized with an emphasis on how the program works through its many iterations and throughout its 22-year history, right? It's much more than that. It's, it's more about how families collectively, individually, have experienced, like, a very tumultuous uh, way of raising families. That right. begins, you know, with the Mexican Revolution, repatriation, the Brazil program, Operation Wetback. So I see it more like, can we begin to actually historicize the network? where that continuity is not lost and how is it experienced by families and that's what I urge my son to do to be historical on their efforts to really start to like you know have this very formal understanding and a very humane understanding of how much they've weathered already as a family right, and right. to be very um, very expansive in their assessment of that and then what kinds of questions come from that and who do you necess- who, do you, who do you must talk to you know right. because of yes, that kind yes. of inventory you know and with what kind of care so all of it, I mean, I think organically, it just like uh, it bleeds into each other. And when I teach, I mean, a lot of what you see in this book has been material that I've used in the classroom or in some ways conversations that I've had with students have been very helpful in my mm-hmm. not giving up on this material being formative to how this history was actually shared in the form of this book. So I think all of it's in conversation well, for me. You know, it's it's an, it was a process that was very much in conversation with how I was striving to be a historian at UCI and beyond that. You know? Definitely, and I appreciate how you you are connecting, you know, both your your personal lived experience, um, you know, with the motivations to well, first, you know, as a teacher, but also the motivations behind your research and all of that, because that comes across very clearly in the book. I mean, even from the title, it, it jumps out to me right away, initially, Abrazando el Espiritu. And I was wondering if, you know, maybe to, to segue our discussion into the book, if you could start off um, by, by just talking about the title a little bit and how you came to settle on uh, that particular, you know, this particular phrase to frame your book. Um, a lot of, I guess, to me, whenever I conducted um, oral life history, that part of the book, or even like when coming to the material itself, and what I thought was needed to be, you know, in the book when submitting drafts of this, or even sharing it with editors, um, a lot of what I wanted to convey was the spirited approach to how we do what we do. In this case, how you decide to like assert yourself as a family. Mm-hmm. or like an excess not give up on family life that feels personally satisfying and generative. And so for me, like, it always went back to the phrasing of the need to embrace wholeheartedly, o abrazar con, con ánimo, con espíritu, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Like the challenge at hand, right? And, and when you, basically when you're embracing, or in some ways, like, you're thinking about it this way, that you're going to be very much committed. Um, it's, it's meant to inspire the sense of it's done with a lot of, politics, a lot of care, it's done right. with a lot of consequences in mind, right? Um, and that's how a lot of the different oral life histories ended up being connected to each other, that I noticed that it was like an echoing effect 
meaning that you know uh, you take note that everyone, whether they were at 60 years of age, 70, 80, 50, um, they all connected in that way where they were very eager to like share their history with me, but they wanted me to understand that what I was learning or what I was actually being offered was something that with a lot of care was being made accessible to me because their journeys had taken a lot of care. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of mm-hmm. like emotional pull. So I, I, it's more about not taking for granted what it means to learn from this generation of women and men, you know, or this act of being historically in tune and historically sensitive, right? Um, so that's why I felt that that was the way to go on a very conceptual level. But just overall, like uh, even the um, introduction of the book, I really uh, foreground how um, the, the cover image or the, or the image used for the cover right. It actually, like, already is in some ways uh, foreshadowing miscare. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there's this sense of, of, like, how do we motion to the absence of a family relative that's meant to be a father figure, a breadwinner, without being accusatory and without shaming, and without in some ways making the situation more, more difficult than it already is emotionally, right? So it's that politics of embracing that kind of challenge. And how do you do that legwork of urging someone to return, someone who you know is, is trying their best, but hasn't been able to return and actually permanently reunite in either Mexico or the United States with the entire family. So that was a constant throughout my writing of this. I, I sensed that that was the energy that was the most productive in which to like actually share the mm-hmm. and the complexity of it all. Well, thank you for so explaining. So that's where like, the whole like, expression of that comes from. Right. The, well, definitely. And that's what I was going to say. Thanks for sharing that because it, it really came across to me um, – you know, initially, I'm, I'm just one of those people that's, that's really drawn to titles, and I like to analyze them in, in all the books that I read and try to understand how they either encapsulate an argument or mostly in the type of work I'm reading. I mean, that's what I'm looking for. But in your work, uh, in th- this book particular, that wasn't what struck me. It didn't strike me as a, a nice, catchy phrase that really you know distilled a, a complex argument in a wonderful way, although it, it does that too. But what it gave more so, what it gave a sense to me was that this was a way – that the you know the people the men the women and children that are the the subjects and the basis of your sources this is was their approach to life i mean this this phrase kind of mm-hmm. right it, it expresses the way they they viewed their world and, and their experiences and their situations and, and they took this type of energy and you know optimism and you know sense of struggle with with everything that come along came along is that is yeah, that I'm fair glad it that well. yeah i'm glad it resonated that, that way that's awesome Great. And um, so starting with that, then you started to mention that this that your book is, is a much very different take on the Bracero program. And it, it truly is. And so I was wondering if you could just quickly maybe explain just for our, our, our listeners that aren't so you know, well versed in what the Bracero program was, if you could just state very quickly, you know, what what was the Bracero program in general? That is, how did it begin? Uh, what were its initial goals? And and also, what did it bequeath to our contemporary society, right? Um, in this sense, it's, it's in some ways, I think all of us know it to a certain extent. Because this program is still alive and well, and its consequences and its design. Mm-hmm. You know, um, in that sense, like, you still have people who, like, are suffering from the kinds of exploitation they endure because of the program. You know, they have physical injury. Um, they have a sense of longing that's emotional for all of what they kind of forfeited or lost along the way. Um, and you see people still laboring under similar terms, meaning they're contract- contractually obligated 
to labor without expecting much in return in agriculture, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. forestry, and the construction of infrastructure, right? So in essence, like the Bracero program began in 1942, but it was alive and well previously, meaning you had different iterations of this when they dealt, when it came to the um, railroad construction mm-hmm. that happened between Mexico and the United States. So you have men being recruited in similar ways, meaning men who are healthful, who are very much um, young, you know, between the ages of 18 and 22, uh, that are willing to, in some ways, agree to just leave Mexico without many guarantees or any guarantees other than employment of some sort. Um, with regards to wages, it was always uh, the prevailing wage, or that term was used mm-hmm. to actually describe what to expect. But that was at the discretion of the employer or the contractor. Um, you were very much at the mercy of the climate in which you found yourself locally, socially, ethnically, racially. Um, you were thought of and perceived differently depending on where you landed as a contract labor in the United States. If it was the West Coast, the Midwest, the South, like, you just, you know, you were open to so much confusion and at the same time an exactitude for what people wanted them to see, which was for your labor. And to, for the most part, forget like all of why you're doing this work, mm-hmm. you know, stripping you of your humanity, meaning like the obligations of your family or the kinds of expectations you have for yourself. Um, because realistically, you couldn't finance very much for what you were being paid as a bracero, as a contract laborer. Um, you were paid enough to simply survive or simply to take heart that at least you were getting paid some form of payment. Mm-hmm. Um, but you labored for a continuous um, hours very early in the morning to like, probably two in the afternoon, and at that time, there were no work breaks, and I believe that's still the case for the most part when you're labor in agriculture. Um, language was an issue. You were managed by people who often did not know Spanish, or they knew, but they were very selective in what they actually made accessible to your information and his rights. You didn't have representatives to speak on your behalf as a laborer or, or your grievances to be shared with either the United States or Mexico. Even though they both agreed to this labor agreement, right. um, so in essence, you're just a person who's laboring without protections with regards to your person, your feelings, your health. That's just not there, um, and you're doing this for cycles that could range anywhere between a month to three months to six months, um, and you're doing this without hardly any communication between you and your employer or you and your family, or you and the United States and the Mexicano government. So ultimately, it's a very exasperating situation, mm-hmm. because you're forced to do so much without expecting much in return, and that's supposed to feel like an opportunity to you. Right, right. You know? And there's a lot of shame around it, you know. Mexicanos, for the most part, did not celebrate themselves. Right. You know, they kind of felt like they were in some way betraying the nation by mm-hmm. laboring in this way. Mm-hmm. You know, that they were in some ways um, giving life to the stigma and the kinds of stereotypes and racism around people of Mexican descent at the time, that they're settling for this, that they're like in droves coming to labor in this way. Right. Because ordinarily, Bracero's began their journey in Mexico, and this often took them or began as far as Oaxaca. You have Braceros from Oaxaca making their way all the way to the United States on their own dime, you know, and waiting processing, which is usually um, interrogation, um, physical examination, mm-hmm. and the bathing, to board trains to then be again inspected by the employer's representative on the U.S. side of the border. 
So in essence, that's all public knowledge. Right. And that's publicly stipulated as what the Bracero program expects. Mm-hmm. And for Mexicanos to see that Mexicanos were like, you know, signing up to do this and doing this, uh, not a lot of them were very supportive of it. Right. Or supportive of those who actually accepted this challenge, right? On the U.S. side, it was seen that we need the surplus of labor, but not we need these men who have families. Or, like, we need to, like, employ these men because we need their labor. Mm-hmm. No. Or, like, we have an emergency situation, and by any means necessary, we need them here, but without protections or guarantees as people, and as people who have connections and ties to Mexico. You know, so that is something that I think, when we think about this program, doesn't resonate very clearly or as priority. And when I investigated this, that was very incident for me. Like how, in some ways, this was a very dehumanizing project, mm-hmm. a very dehumanized process, it continues to, in some ways, um, be very much alive and well with how people labor, you know, and why. Right. You know, how much of their personhood they forfeit for the sake of earning a wage and oftentimes being very underpaid at best. So, and, that, and that's information that travels as a lived experience, as a situation that's ongoing, and it takes a lot, a lot of people to talk about it. Right. Um, there's also, like, in some ways, people feel it's very, like, it's so uh, fortunate, but in the sense of feeling like, well, it was a stepping stone in the United States. Right, And it was right. a stepping stone towards building, you know, what now my family enjoys as a promising experience. Right, mm-hmm. but it took all kind of sacrifice and work. You know, they do say that too. So there's a lot of a lot of different ways in which this has been remembered, um, oftentimes ignored, oftentimes even themselves and their families being hesitant to talk about it. So this history is very diverse in that mm-hmm. way. Right, it's very rich because there's so much to do with regards to how do we actually try to get right to have as much of it as possible as something we know as common sense knowledge, um, it's, it's, it's a project that's very massive, you know, because this project or this program was so massive. You know, when you think about the Mexicano context, it's massive. You mm-hmm. know, they drew men from all of Mexico, and as the program grew in time and, and its, its expanse, like, it just recruited more and more people because the need to simply labor for some sort of wage was urgent for people. Right. In the United States, it became very popular to, like, employ people this way. You know, to feel that you can employ them, and as soon as the employment is no longer an issue, that you can, you know, with a lot of, like, I guess you can say, with ease, like, make sure they return to Mexico, you know? And that wasn't the case. So, in essence, it's a very complex process, and that's why you have people who, you know, in some ways trace, like, their beginning, or trace in some ways, like, their beginning in terms of their relationships in the United States with the Brasero program. Well, yeah, and I, because it'd be, yeah, sorry. No, as I say, I appreciate your your comments here because it it um, what resonates with me is that you connect the Bracero program, uh, and even though it's it's viewed historically, I think in 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 the standard narrative of the program as this uh, as a temporary program, right? It was a program that began in 1942, uh, right? You know, as the U S is entering into world war two, actually, you know, actually sending soldiers, you know, and engaged in declared war, you know, on Japan and the Axis powers and whatnot. But it's, so it's viewed as it was this temporary program that was initiated to fulfill these, these labor shortages at a particular moment of time. And it was extended over time and it ended in, was it 1964? Is that correct? When it was no longer renewed? Yeah. 
Yeah. Right. But what you just did, and uh, which I think is so important, is to connect the Bracero program with the much longer history of economic, social, and particularly labor relations across the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. And uh, you, you did that just by saying that uh, even to people that may not be familiar with this program, the actual the name of the program, they're very familiar with the the lifestyles or the the imagery mm-hmm. of um, of uh, the type of labor relations that that are actually existing now, you know, right between various populations, and no longer just necessarily to tie directly to Mexico, but throughout Latin America and the United States. And so this is very much a much more deeply uh, historical process that has existed for long periods of time throughout the the Southwest, particularly you know from maybe the middle of the 19th century onward as, you know, we have the transition of territory uh, from uh, that is the American Southwest, formerly Mexico, then becoming part of the United States. And then, you know, the, the push of economic and, uh, you know, commercial interest into those regions that started to create these, these networks, as you mentioned, with labor recruitment, all of that. And that is so deeply historical. Um, and again, I think some people look at this program as, you know, this was a, a again, a, a temporary program that some that ended in 1964. But again, you just connected that this is kind of one more, you know, more more of a seamless history that is right of labor relations to between these different regions. Is that is that kind of correct? Yes, yes. And it's a very, I guess, in that way, a very underestimated experience overall. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that it's so um, expensive and it needs. So much complexity with the mixed emotions and the mixed receptiveness to who these um, men, you know, were allowed to actually like what they were allowed to enjoy upon returning or upon migrating mm-hmm. has common knowledge about them. You know, oftentimes returning to Mexico was very hard. You know, because what? How much do you share about the negligence of governments, um, the exploitation, the contracting? Um, that's very hard to talk about at the time and even today. You know, as much as, like, there is, like, more of a move to be more vocal and public about workers' rights and immigration reform and, mm-hmm. and, and very, like, a very consequential ways of thinking about the world, um, it's still very hard for them to go back to that movement where it was consistent and continuous um, forms of feeling very dehumanized all at once and not having, like, very much a wide acceptance for acknowledging it as occurring in ways that are about advancing rights or advancing a sense of collective acknowledgement that's restorative. Mm-hmm. Right? To this day, it continues to be one of these historical moments that has yet to be actually um, uh, conveyed or reflected in exhibitions or thought about with a lot of care to the kind of feelings that really animated people's fears and their anxiety about even talking about their experience of Brasero. Right. right. Not just that the program was, you know, to be implemented and that it had this kind of recruitment or how many people labored, but what were its actual consequences right. and how enduring those are. Right. And um, so overall, I think that that's, some, that's a very important dimension of this moment and of this experience and of, and of this way of coming to know migration um, that I think historians and overall, like all of us who are in this larger effort to um, raise consciousness when it comes to the historical connections and the historical common ground we share, that we still need to like be very energetic about doing, you know, making sure this doesn't get lost. 
Definitely. And, you know, your book does a wonderful job of, of doing that, of, of showing the deeply personal and, you know, intimate, uh, you know, feelings and experiences, you know, of the families that were tied up or caught up in the Bracero program. And I'd like to talk a bit more about that, about your particular focus on Bracero families and women in particular, because this is the the true gem uh, of I think of your work, just as far as how it's conceptualized. Because not many, I don't know of any other studies. You would be much more well versed on on the subject matter than I. But in all my reading of the Bracero programs, it's always been much more about. Uh, first of all, it's it's a U.S. perspective. It's it's a side that uh, where the uh, written by either you know historians or just a a conceptual look at the program from the U.S. side. That is, its need to attract particular kinds of labor, uh, but also you know the cost of that in regards to type of labor exploitation and implications on uh, immigration policy and uh, things of that sort. But your focus again is much more on the families themselves and the women, particularly in women and children that were left behind per se, in, in Mexico, right? Could you talk a little bit more uh, about that, about how uh, you, you've talked about how you've developed this view because it's very personal, but can you talk more about particularly how you developed this transnational view of the program, which I think is something that's uh, very unique to your work, and you came upon came to this transnational view by looking at families and looking at women in particular? Um, a lot of the energy that centers on women and the children um, really is, a consequence of, of taking to heart who was most receptive initially and throughout the whole undertaking of trying to understand the decisions of my family and the decisions of people who were raised at that time, which were my grandparents' generation, um, really rested with the kinds of eagerness and the kinds of generosity that I received from the women and people who were children at the time. Um, they were the most enthusiastic and actually like being a part of an oral life history interview. Mm-hmm. Um, they were the most enthusiastic and wanting to understand well, what was I like striving to in some ways like learn from them with regards to how to bring their histories into the classroom or have it circulate in the context of a library mm-hmm. um, in the United States. Um, all of that resonated a very political system. Like they, they really were sold on the idea that it was important for you know, a wider audience beyond themselves to understand how hard it was to actually be supportive of their family and to actually be very um, committed to a family that underwent so much strain and was very fragile for a great, very formative amount of time. You know, as people are newlyweds, as people are new to being parents, they're, they're forced to also negotiate borders in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was something that they were very honest in saying. They wanted to uh, um, be supportive of me and keep being as a priority. So... <coughs> I'm really sorry. So, in essence, like a lot of these women, um, when they've talked to me in the form of a formal oral life history, or when I was getting to know them to then ask them to be a part of this project, um, they were very helpful in trying to understand what are the difficult decisions to separating, what are the difficult decisions to staying emotionally connected, how did you navigate the overarching presence of governments. All of that was very um, formative to then what became the book. You know, that those were the questions that people were drawn to. Those were the ones that they themselves, you know, shared with me. As why not go there? You know, why not go there first? 
And um, so when I was framing, like, how do I actually, like, make sure that this is a family experience? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry. Um, it really came from their initiative to really, like, insist that I knew not lose sight of this, you know? Wow. And that I'd be very, like, good about sharing with people that it was so hard to be alone. It was so hard to mourn being married, but yet being married without your husband by your side. Or realizing that you were not going to hear from someone you loved so very much for an indefinite amount of time. Mm-hmm. And with everyone watching, meaning family, relatives, uh, neighborhood, friends, town residents, and everyone like in some ways like, being very skeptical of your maturity or the genuineness of the connection you had emotionally. And that being something that you have to be very tactful as to how you navigate that pressure, that accountability when there were so many limitations around what women could do in public or how they could dress or how they could actually ask questions. There was so much of a decorum that was steeped in silence or in um, being what they framed as abnegada, mm-hmm. meaning that, like, you know, you know how to, like, handle, like, very rough consequences without it actually bringing you down or, or you, like, um, diminishing in spirit, but yet you were very much responsible and very much in earnest doing this hard work of, like, being in a marriage that was not one in which you were with your husband or that you could afford to be together as a family for an extended amount of time. You had to do that, with, uh, you had to do that work without it coming off as work, and you right. had to do it with a lot of care and, and with a lot of pride, you know, and all of that was very hard for them. And I think now that they are, like, very much elderly people who have been through so much more, they felt that this was very necessary to talk about. So when I was trying to frame out how I do this respectfully without over-idealizing, without over-dramatizing, mm-hmm. without over um, any way um, setting boundaries that with regards to the trust that they had, you know, um, that they had for what they shared with me, um, I really went for how do you, like, to bring this to life in ways in which it was about the spirit behind how they did things. Mm-hmm. and the kinds of, like, um, collective and individual strategies they executed to do this work. Right. So that it felt less like work and more like a prerogative and more like a very urgent move on their end. And that's why in some ways chapter titles or even, like, the way sections are bracketed, they're about making reference to this, you know. So I used the Sirida, which is very determined and very daring. Or, you know, Awake Houses, you know, Casa Vespiertas, right? So it's about the animal, meaning the feeling that that kind of politics inspires in people mm-hmm. and how it's so widely shared and then it becomes very much of a source from which you act, a very empowering one. So that was to me like the, the ultimate way of like really like honoring all of the different ways in which I got to learn from, from the women and now women, but before children um, that actually, you know, share with me their histories and, and we're very like, supportive of me even in my own journey, you mm-hmm. know, as a graduate student. Um, they would lend, you know, their time, meals, home, you know, um, but they believed in the promise of learning from this. Right. So that was close to me all along. You know, so that's why, you know, they're very much at the core of what I meant or what I mean by the reconfiguration of the borderlands. Mm-hmm. So you have to take it out that it was very personal in this way. Not just the dehumanization that happens when you're being inspected or interrogated by U.S. and Mexican government representatives. It's also those tough questions you have to answer on your own without much support or with very little 
and very finite support that can be lost, you know, with any misspoken word or any, like, uh, public act, you know. So those were, like, very important priorities for me when bringing, like, that very important dimension to family life to the book. Right, and and so these women, you're saying that they were they were driven by kind of their own sense of preserving their history. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, they had they had this desire, right? That their that their yeah, side would be recorded. Them, yeah, I mean, many of them they were very much um, sold on the idea that this needed to be told in the form of a historical monograph, right? Mm-hmm. Like they wanted it to always be a part of how we teach. In, in a way in which if, you know, this book was introduced to undergraduates, high school students, middle school students, that they understood that it deserved that kind of respect. Right. You know, that kind of, like, presentation style. You know, they believed that it was very important for it to travel in this way and not to status go and anecdote, per se. Which, while still important, they wanted it to actually be a part of how people understand um, or how they undertake their learning. Meaning, if it's packaged in a way in which it becomes part of their library, part of how they talk about what they're learning as part of our understanding of history, um, that they were really sold on that. You know, and I did my best to really, like, share that with them. That mm-hmm. that was, like, really, like, a lot of what was inspiring me to be as thorough as possible and as careful as possible and as respectful as possible with their story because it is about their feelings and it is about the personal decisions they've made. And how, how did they feel bringing that to light now? You know, we're talking about mm-hmm. it now with a very frank and a very um, generous attitude in place. Right. So uh, that, That's really, I mean, that's just really impressive uh, for me. And it, 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 what's impressing to me that these women have a sense of not just a desire to record their experiences and their history, but, you know, th- what those experiences were. Because, again, these are deeply personal, deeply intimate experiences mm-hmm. and, and vignettes that, that you show throughout this book. And it's just, you're struck over and over again reading this, just how mm-hmm. deeply uh, personal and, and even vulnerable these people became as, I, I was just, this is my sense of it, as they basically just opened up to you and shared what is most personal and, and what is most uh, intimate uh, feelings and relationships of one's life. I mean, right, those f- relationships with husbands, with loved ones, um, and it wasn't just romantic relationships, which is what I, which is what I want to definitely note here. Is but it's also relationships with parents and children, uh, right? Either a laboring father, you know, that's that's in the United States, writing back or communicating with his children, trying to preserve those emotional bonds, or uh, if it's the other way around, it's a it's a it's a son that's laboring on the other side of the border, and so you provide all these you know different examples and just. Uh, I mean, a, a number of them, um, and you do so in particularly. I think what, what I want to st- start talking about is the, cha- the section. The, sorry, section two in the book that's titled "Love and Longing." Um, can you can you discuss this? Let's discuss this a little bit further, um, and maybe in a bit more detail into how the the chapters are laid out. So, chapter four kind of addresses how. The communications right between uh, braceros and their loved ones were censored while they, they were pretty much under this constant state of surveillance throughout the program. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how that worked? Well, that's the thing. I think that this is where it's very like um, it's very important to understand like how important governments 
even though they didn't necessarily acknowledge it publicly or did not necessarily stress it when recruiting people and employing them, they knew that feelings were powerful. Mm-hmm. So that you know, when you have people laboring and they are writing and they are in some ways, the letter does arrive and make it their way um, from a loved one in Mexico or vice versa, from a loved one in the United States writing to their family in Mexico. Whatever shared there by that loved one, by that trusted person, that becomes invaluable knowledge mm-hmm. because it has that layer of um, respect or a sense of uh, validity, which is it comes from a loved one. And in essence, um, governments were very weary of like what loved ones were sharing with each other mm-hmm. when it came to you know agreements on when we're going to actually reunite or how can you cross as an undocumented person or how can we like meet halfway. Like all of that was very they were, the governments were very weary of that that emotional terrain of the communication and the power of that when it happens between people that are emotionally invested in each other. And why was that? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Why was that? I mean, it's it's another way of like monitoring that movement, right? Mm -hmm. It's like if you make me feel or you make people feel truly disconnected, that's an effective effective, um, technology for basically monitoring the border very effortlessly. Right. When you make it very hard to communicate, very hard to like actually learn from people that are emotionally invested in you and you from them. I mean, and that's, that's where I, that chapter was really, um, I was, I was striving for people to understand that it only takes that kind of measure, making it hard to write, making it hard for these letters to arrive, making mm-hmm. it hard for you not to feel like you're being watched. Right. Right. Because, um, because then you instill a sense of anxiety around that document or how much you're seeing or with what care. And those who continue to write, irrespective of whether the letters were received or whether they had any assurance that indeed it was arriving, um, they took risks when they did that. Right. You know, and, and they have to be very careful with how they did that. So in essence, I mean, the whole issue of the border and where it ends and where it stops it was continuous for them. You know, even as they're writing, that was something they took into account, that this letter had to travel. Mm-hmm. And they did not necessarily know who exactly would be actually handling it had the right to screen it or had a right to like not try not to arrive, right? Mm-hmm. Um, all of these were very deep seated fears and this was part of what it meant to actually navigate borders. You know, we were striving to like nurture that emotional investment. Right. Um, and governments knew this, you know. So in essence they found some ways, like in this case, like making sure that ease around communicating through writing for that not to be commonplace, for that not to be understood as part of the program experience but rather how hard it would be, how in some ways of a luxury it would be, you know, to actually have a letter arrive in a timely manner and for you to actually, like, receive a response that had to do with a letter you sent a month ago or, you know, that was not something that was happening very often. So all of that is to say that that's another manifestation of the border and border mindset and that, you know, these families wrestled it or wrestled with it a lot. Um, You know, when it comes to love and longing, um, a lot of what I wanted to highlight there was the pressure to be in love, but in ways that did not um, feel easy or did not feel fair. You know, in essence, you have feelings for someone or you're engaged to someone or you want to marry someone. And none of that can happen unless that person actually has right. something off. But not only offer in the form of the material terms, but also offer a sense of promise with regards to that person actually with you, like figuring out, well, where, what is stability? What will it look like? Because parents at the time were very weary of having daughters and married people who were in the program. 
Right. You know, they feel the instability of it all. So if you were committed emotionally to someone who was in the program, that was a very hard situation for you to actually share with your family and for your family to be very supportive of. And I highlight there that it was hard for families to accept that as mm-hmm. parents. It was hard for families to navigate it when indeed the daughter's engaged to someone who's a bracero because of that instability. Because they kind of were like, well, where is this person going to go and rest in? And what does that mean for the livelihood of my daughter or my son? Right. Right. Can they have a future as a family? So those are really like very sensitive questions. How do you handle that when everyone's kind of like skeptical that this relationship is going to work out? And does that mean to the public repute of the family? Mm-hmm. So a lot of it is not only material, but it's more about what kind of relationship, what kind of stability. And um, and, there, and and these families are very resourceful with how to answer those questions. Oftentimes, the photographs that they kept in their household, as I mentioned to the chapter in the book, um, they use a sense of creating a sense of presence when the person's absent through the pictures that are in their household, or that a visitor might automatically see when they step into the household's living room or um, patio area that connected all the rooms of the house. So in essence, it was this whole sense of like loyalty too to that person who's off working there. Mm-hmm. How do we keep that memory and their work ethic and their promise alive in the context in which they're kind of constantly seen or perceived as unstable because they're moving, they're constantly going back and forth, trying to finally make enough money to marry and like uh, basically set on to a family of their own. So a lot of those were priorities when, for me, when conceptualizing the very emotive power of love, but at the same time, the hard work that love was at the time. Mm-hmm. It continues to be in many cases when people are constantly relocated or like having to navigate long-distance relationships and, and with very public pressures being a part of the process. Yeah, and it struck me that, because you mentioned this in, in, in the book, that this type of surveillance of communications, whether it was, you know, primarily it was the letters that, that were, were being stopped and, and checked by the consuls and and uh, and looked at by the U.S. Postal Service, that that was an extension of border enforcement policy. And, uh, you know, that... And it was selective. I don't want to, you know, it was very selective. Mm-hmm. Like, it's very hard to actually understand, like, where or how long. Or, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's just this program was so expansive. And, and then there's so many different entities involved. And all of them were struggling with how to, how to assert control or how to publicly say you have things under control, you know, this whole issue of the movement of people. So in essence, there were so many strategies being used, and this was one of them, you know. But it wasn't just that strategy. It was just many, like so many ways of making people feel anxious about the ease with which they could have relationships, migrate, resettle, journey, right? It's like you're making every part of the process or that experience be a source of anxiety for people. Right, right. You know, and especially they're trying to excel as emotionally committed people. So... I think that that's something that I really didn't want readers or people who are, you know, picked up this book and start to learn from it, that, for that not to get lost. But the border manifests in all of these ways, and after a while, it just becomes a source of anxiety in ways that are very, like, expansive, right? right? And, and that's a part of it. Well, and that's what you get a, a, a sense of in, in reading the book, how much mm-hmm. these people were aware, how much women children, again, men even, which which this is what I love about your book. I mean, you were covering both sides of the border. I mean, how you how you conceptually did this is is just amazing. I mean, being able to tell, narrate all these stories of both the men that are working 
on one side of the border, but also, you know, these women that are at home, they're preserving families, they're preserving their their own uh, economic situation back in these towns uh, in Mexico. And so they're, that involves not just caring for a family, but as you mentioned, a lot of times running businesses. So there's all these very material uh, pressures that, that just come along with life. But amidst all of this, what they're really trying to do at the most basic level, right, is just preserve these relationships that are most sacred and, and are most precious to them. And they are doing so in spite of the fact that they know they're being surveyed. Uh, they're, they know that they're being monitored in ways. And and so you started to mention how there's they try to think of ways to to first um, not necessarily it's not necessarily getting around it per se because they knew right that their communications were being monitored, but that. You know, that, that sense of being monitored, that sense of ha- knowing that their communications were being watched over, they, they structured their communications in strategic ways. And you particularly mentioned the use of photographs, uh, also the, the use of music. Can you talk about those two a bit more, particularly you mentioned in, in the book, um, you know, the, these photographic stories of love that were created, you know, across the border that were meant to really strengthen these bonds of family and love? Yes, actually, you know, when, when learning from the families themselves, especially when I interviewed couples that wanted to be interviewed as couples, meaning like together, wow. um, a lot of what they oftentimes pointed to and they shared with so much generosity and they went out of their way to do this um, was to actually like share with me like the ways that they actually felt comfortable telling their story. Meaning I had questions and, you know, I would also be very receptive to what they would elaborate on and develop questions from that. Mm-hmm. And and they were really content that, you know, we were having this conversation, that it was going to be a part of the evidence for the book and that I was taking, like, it's always great heart from learning from feelings and from learning from what it meant to be invested in each other at a time in which it was not widely accepted or seen uh, very favorably uh, by peers, by their families. Um, but when it came down to how they really wanted to share their stories with me, it came down to photographs. Wow. Like, they were very um, persistent in, like, showcasing, like, a lot of the work they did, but not, like, in a way where they were being um, resentful or in a way that was negative, but more, like, really, like, showcasing to me, like, look, this is how much, you know, I spent or how much I labored to take this picture, but this picture was part of us, like, like being very much in conversation with each other, or I made sure that I went to this hairstylist to make sure I look this way. I mean, all the work wow. that went mm-hmm. into the actual photograph, and then it, it became more about when I would um, package, package with photographs, right? How they were even laid out or, like, set up or, like, stacked together, um, that to me, that's when I started, you know, this is more of a photo story of love, you know? Mm-hmm. You start to see how they themselves have, like, shared it with you. Like, the presentation they have opted for, the order in which the photographs were, not not always chronological, um, but more about, like, the kinds of different things that they were able to then remember or immediately travel back to when they laid eyes on the photograph. Right. So, you know, as a historian, you know, I was very drawn to that like the magic of that meaning, like how they felt that was the most effective way of me learning from them, that I would could get it right if I understood that politics. Right. Versus just, oh, these photographs are of a time period, and that they're like this, and no, it wasn't like that kind of itemized approach. It was more like, this photograph took this much, you know, and this photograph allowed us to not give up altogether. Right. Or because this photograph was in my parents' living room, that allowed them to like feel like questions were being answered without them having to speak. You know, so 
it was truly like you're telling story through the photograph or you're experiencing that lot through the photo story that the family or that couple shared at one moment and continue to do so. So that was a lot of like the framing and a lot of the inspiration behind that conceptualization of how do we learn from their own documentation and their own archives with a lot of humanity and a lot of respect. You know, what were the feelings that they wanted to share with each other through these photographs as well as to remain very consistent in not giving up as priorities for them, as mm-hmm. people who have feelings and who have relationships that are emotional. So um, so that was a lot of, like, thinking behind that, you know, and, and I'm very glad that, in essence, like, the University of California Press um, did not give up on that and that right. they allowed, you know, to actually, like, frame it this way and, mm-hmm. and creatively I mean, not to give up on that. Because for the most part, that's something that always struck me as um, very uh, problematic and to this day, like, very disheartening that scholars refuse to really, like, interrogate, like, that emotional investment that comes from love, right? Like, right. they're not willing to actually dedicate conceptually um, evidence, um, even, like, how we talk to people when we're actually learning from the oral life history and collecting it, like, that very energizing part of who they are and, and the kinds of connection they have with people without idealizing, but simply the, the hard work of that and that to be substantive to how we understand the historical moment. So that's why the story and I was like, no, like this needs to be there in this way, you know, and I'm really glad that um, the editors and that they were very receptive to it helped me through the whole process too of not giving up on it. I'm glad they were that way too, because I think that is just the tremendous strength of this book. That you uh, you don't take these feelings for granted, and you really examine them and you explain them. But what I what I appreciate hearing is is um, how you're telling me that these your own subjects, these own people that you were you were interviewing, they wanted to make sure that there's that their history was recorded in the way that they experienced it and that the photographs were then uh, a way for them to imbue you with a sense of that meaning, right? And a, a mm-hmm. sense of that personal history, because it was, it, it was still striking to me how these photographs were, were really created a sense of, of, you know, empowerment for people to endure the stresses that were inflicted upon families on both sides of the border. That mm-hmm. was very, you know, that was very touching. And, and that was something that, really struck me uh, repeatedly throughout reading the book. And not just the photographs, but also you mentioned, you know, the use of, of music, uh, romantic ballads, how, you know, the role that they played in helping people to also to to deal with the stresses that um, labor migration was putting upon families. Another one of the things that, uh, and I know we're running out of time, but I wanted you to touch on very briefly, if you will, towards the end of the book, uh, some of the other uh, strategies that women and families came up with on, you know, back home in towns like, let's see, I want to make sure I get it right, uh, San, San Martin de Hidalgo, right? That's one of the key sites in the this study. And yeah. so there's some key strategies that women came up with in order to help each other through this process, uh, particularly I'm, I'm thinking here of uh, your chapters that discuss awake houses and the intermediaries. Can you explain those uh Perhaps take a little bit of time to do that. Oh, sure. Um, so this is, you know, there is a lot of public pressure to do the work of supporting a family, of um, advancing the livelihood or the welfare of the family with little support, financially speaking, from governments who are recruiting 
them into labor in the United States with Braceros. Um, and you're, you're seeing this move at the time between 1942 and 1954 for women to take ownership of a lot of what the government just left unanswered with regards to how do you actually financially um, navigate this absence, um, navigate being a, a head of household without opportunities being generated to actually undertake this work. Um, that opens up a world of questions with regards to how do you labor for like endless hours? How do you raise children um, in ways in which you're the very much an authoritarian person with regards to the kinds of allowances and the kinds of, of uh, the kinds of liberties you allow your children to have? Um, all of this is done in the context of being very much public work, meaning how you're actually um, thought of as mother as daughter-in-law, as wife, all of this is publicly um, very much open to discussion. So this makes it even harder for women who are as young as 18 to as old as like 54 to actually like do the work of raising a family that can be as um, large as nine children. Uh, uh, to do this mm-hmm. under so much public scrutiny by people they care about. You know, you're talking about your extended family, your immediate family, and your children too. Like the example you're setting forth, without a father in place or without a uh, partner as breadwinner in place, um, all of that like sets the, the stage for like very um, entrepreneurial women, very uh, determined women to begin to see themselves with that kind of sensibility in place. I mean, they begin to understand that that's like a shared common ground that they could not afford to like take on strictly on their own. Right. Meaning they don't, um, many of them refuse to simply isolate themselves. They go through some of that and they realize how unproductive it is. And what they start to do is they start to open their homes to each other in ways in which it fit into their work day. It was a part of their work day. Meaning, casas despiertas or wake houses was when women actually uh, would have like a patio area or would have a place in the household in which they could accommodate like women who are similarly raising families without their uh, partners or like husbands there because they're laboring in the United States where they had time to actually have conversations that actually remained private or to actually like be very much um, advisors to each other as to how do you actually make, you know, the most of your money with the kinds of um, expectations around diet. Like how do you feed a family with so little um, and sharing strategies around that or how do you actually like um, if someone's sick in the family how do you take care of them with what little you have or with, with what everyone knew collectively um, so it became you offer your home as a space in which people have honest conversations without fear or without the public scrutiny being so much a part of it mm-hmm. how do you do this without drawing negative public attention mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. you had to find ways in which the household was accessible but People coming and going was not thought of as, you know, an aberration or departure from what people were doing. You made it so that this was happening as you're undertaking your, your everyday life. You would stop, you know, check in or talk for 20 minutes as you're walking to pick up something you ordered or as you're walking to wash your clothes somewhere. So in essence, it's kind of like it became everyday practice, but it was very, very cherished. I mean, there was a definite sense of discretion with this and um, the level of etiquette. Mm-hmm. You know, like privacy, um, having a sense of trust in each other was very important. And this was all woman-centered. 
you know, a lot, a lot of right. the women who lend themselves and their time and their homes in this way, they were people who had, you know, weathered through four or five years before they of, of family separation, uh, when they arrived to this realization that they needed to do more. Right, you know, right. So this was hard um, When it comes to intermediarias or intermediary women, these are women who are older in age, you know, they're 35, 42, 47, and they've raised children who are now, you know, young adults or they're adolescents. And they're doing a tough work of striving to connect with women who are younger in age, but are similarly conflicted about how they develop as parents, as daughters-in-law. How much responsibility do you take up and you extend your family? How do you account for your time? How do you avoid um, very uncomfortable conversations or uh, confrontations with a returning a settled husband? You know, how, how do you account for if they are sending women successfully or if they have left money behind with you to administer before they continue or go off to a different um, contract in the United States? How do you account for the finances? How do you make sense of that world without your relationship becoming even more fragile? Mm-hmm. Um, all of these were matters that in many areas, because of their harder experience, we're very willing to talk to women about. And the women that actually solicited that kind of advice, you know? So in essence, there, I framed them this way, as any other people, meaning people who are willing to make emotionally, generously understand and make themselves acceptable in this way, and their harder lessons in this way. They themselves don't call themselves this, you know? Right. Um, so that was a very feminist approach that they themselves don't think about that way. Right. They uh-huh. think of that we just didn't want it to continue to be hard for everybody else. Right. You right. know, it's that hard. They felt that you know, if the female head of household was thou or was like, in some ways, like navigating this as healthfully as possible, then in some ways that was also a big need for the children too. You mm-hmm. know, that was not letting down a generation altogether. Um, so all of all of that world of how do you navigate the realities of border enforcement in the form of a contract labor program, mm-hmm. all of that was urgent to me because that's like the very consequential and the very often forgotten like reality of what it means to labor as a contract laborer. Certainly, like, yeah. There is your family who makes your ability to labor somewhere else possible. Right. Right. That no, that's exactly it. With I mean, the that... help of people. So so that was like a part of that whole act of migrating that I didn't want to get lost, mm-hmm. especially when, when women were so insistent on discussing this with me. Just part of how they felt that the program was not doing the best of them, you know, that they were actually like responding in ways that to varying degrees was very helpful to women in, in general. Mm-hmm. So that was a, a, a lot of what really like was at the center of my dedicating chapters to this. Well, thank you, and thank you for sharing that. Uh, and those chapters are, are so important. I mean, as you mentioned, it it records the whole other part, uh, the whole other component of this equation as to what makes possible the laboring of you know these men who are brothers and husbands and, and other types of family members at, at such distance 
um, you know, locales. What made that possible were these families and, and women that they left behind, but that were very much invested, you know, in preserving these relationships and also particularly in, in the success in, uh, of their family. I mean, when I say success, I mean the maintaining of these relationships, but, you know, looking towards the future. I mean, they were coping with these very difficult situations uh, that the border and, and this, this form of labor migration was inflicting upon them. But they were doing that, you know, continually looking forward with optimism. And I think that's what the title really kind of, um, you know, shows that there is this, this hope uh, that things were going to turn out better you know, on kind of, you know, on the other side, once we get through this contract, once we get through this period of time, um, things are going to be a bit better, you know. Uh, but there was always a goal that they were working towards that was both preserving the family, but also setting the family up for what was coming next. Is that right? Yes, yes. And that's the thing. I think a lot of these women, that's why I think they're very historical in their estimation of what was at stake, you know, and, and the massiveness of everything that they really began to think about future generations and, and their own ways to be supportive of women being as healthy as possible for their families, you know, and, and, their, and their mindset and then the kinds of um, the mourning, the loss, the, the kinds of difficult reality that set in the minute that your husband, your father, your grandfather, your brother um, decided to migrate as a bracero, you know, like that right. it affected, you know, not only like, let's say, the head of household per se, but everyone around that person, right? Um, be it a woman or a man, but in this case, as women. Um, and what did they owe each other? Because they knew that very well. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a very collective accountability that, that really, like, framed and, and energized all these women to act in these ways um, and to be supportive of each other. And I think that's why when, you know, interacting with them and, and learning from them and asking them for interviews, over time it became something that they welcomed because it was know, consistent with that kind of spirited approach to life, you know, that part of embracing the spirit or abrazando el espíritu, right? right? Because, you know, if if my intention was along the lines of what they were doing all along, I had been doing all along, then it was was, was like, it was very consistent, you know? Mm -hmm. And initially, you know, even to have families a part of this project, I really um, benefited greatly from the kinds of connections that endured with regards to my grandparents' rapport with families in San Martín Hidalgo. you know, a lot of people were very receptive to me talking to me initially, and I mean by a lot of people, like the men themselves, mm-hmm. because of the kinds of friendships they had had with my grandparents and my grandfather specifically. So that began a good rapport, meaning they started to understand my politics through how I, you know, interviewed them. And, and you know, and, and sure enough, women took note, and their wives took note, or their, you know, their family relatives took note, and, and they kind of noticed you know, the politics of the questions I was asking and the kinds of work I was doing with them, um, that really, I think, echoed with regards to what they had been and continue to do, you know, when offering their homes to people or their time or their energy, their advice. So um, so that's why I think all of this is also interconnected, mm-hmm. you know, and it's also, like, ever-present, right? right? Because that, that was, like, a blessing, like, in the sense that they... They sensed that in our, in our interactions, and then they felt, hey, it's consistent with what we've been doing all along. Right. So why not? Why not in our life history, you know? Mm-hmm. And then the politics of it is who would learn from it and where, where they wanted that information to travel to with ease, you know, as a book. Um, so, yeah, so in essence, you know, for me, I've learned so much from it, and I've learned more and, and, and gotten a really humane sense as to why, you know, my family's, like, experience has been the way it's been, mm-hmm. you know, and... 
and I hope it does the same for, for leaders, you know, it encourages them to look and to ask and to really begin to embrace the challenge of, like, understanding more with regards to the, the decisions that frame your family experience and the connection to immigration and the connection to how we think about um, rights and, and what um, we're afforded to if we're, in fact, you know, a part of immigrant families. Well, definitely, and that's definitely what I think the reader is is left with, you know, from from your book. You know, not only just taking with them this experience, these the experiences of these family, uh, these families, and their you know deeply personal commitment to you know sharing these parts of their life with you, but also to making those connections, to realizing that they are this is well, the situations and the families, the people that you discuss, that you know this is part of, you know, examining the past and, first of all, I mean, narrating the past and preserving the past and examining it, but that also it's very much part of the present. And you do that at the, towards the end of the book in, in making that connection with, uh, you know, these women that seeing, you know, they're, as you mentioned, this was not just about preserving history, it was very much political. It was, a, uh, you know, a way for them to to see and, and make a statement, even a critique, if you will, about this, but not only the past and and the wrongs of the program, if you will, and the strategies that they use to cope with it. And, and you know, there are also their own relationships, but also uh, the, how this is happening, continuing to happen in, in the current present, right, with our current focus. Um, and that, get washed, that gets washed away, you know, if you will, or it gets, it gets clouded with uh, most of the discussion, which talks about border enforcement or immigration policy. What's lost in that, that mix is the deeply personal yeah, parts of these people's lives. We're very, we're very drawn to like thinking about it as institutionally um, rich or institutionally um, we're limited in, in our imaginary when it mm-hmm. comes to it. And in fact, like when you just look inwards, when you look around, you know, and you start to really with a lot of humanity and a lot of care, you realize like how in some ways like it's, it's much more than that. I mean, it stems from that and that's very important. But a lot of the decisive and very like underestimated like ways of being proactive or like being in some ways helpful mm-hmm. towards like not being complicit you know in the silences or in the um, in the failure to understand like, how consequential a lot of it is is to really like with a lot of care and like, talk to people and, and to get to know and, and to get to understand like how far we can get the consequences from we are you know and how does that frame our learning priorities and the kinds of um, investments we make with our time and how we share what we know with people and with whom. You know, I think, like, after this book, you know, when it's released, you know, I'm always struck by who's drawn to it and, and the students and what they have to say about it and how they're very um, very spontaneous and very generous with how they respond, you know. And, and, it's, and like, I think what is most heartening to me about it or what has been most heartening is that they express, like, a willingness to ask more. Or more Great. of a sense of Great. why how mm-hmm. important it is to, with a lot of respect, like bring this book to the table. I mean, you come and talk to their families about it. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had countless students tell me that after reading, you know, even just a few chapters, they feel like compelled to call home. Wow. You know, and to share with their families. Hey, I read this. That reminds me of my grandmother. Or I read this and did it. Mm-hmm. You know, my grandmother do some of this. So, and that to me is like the best part. You know. That right. it starts to do, but what they're taking from the college classroom is energizing them to be more explicit in how they talk about history with their families Certainly. and more personal with that explicitness. And so that's a part of it too that I'm really like pleasantly heartened by, you know, um, that that's like also very much has been 
some of the response to, to this approach to how we discuss the mid 20th century and the diversity and immigration status and the diversity in generation and the diversity in approach, you know. That's what I think the Brazil program is. It's diversity in all these ways, right. um, you know, with, with a series of consequences. So even to you, to, for, to get this invitation from you, like that was just the best too. Oh, you know, great. I know that it reaches, you know, a community that is also invested in, like, what are we producing as Latino scholars right. who are invested in the Latino experience. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so it's, it's all been, like, such a privilege. So, great. Well, we definitely appreciate you taking so much time to, to discuss your book and, and your work with us. And I was wondering, just as we wrap up this conversation, if you could share with us uh, what it is that you're working on now. Um, I'm currently very invested in learning more from students who are graduating as undergraduates at the moment and are very much um, have an accountability on their shoulders. And it's very hard to discuss with regards to how much they have to now do for their families or the kinds of um, pressures that come with being the first to graduate or the first to in some ways navigate the transition between having attended like a highly ranked university and coming back to a very working poor community and the divides and the kinds of questions that surface and the kinds of identity formation politics that mm-hmm. students espouse in honoring a very civically engaged um, ethic with regards to the choices they make, but how hard it is for that to be understood by their parents, by their right. peers. Right. Uh, what they reference is home, you know, like that homecoming. Like, what does that imply? What kinds mm-hmm. of words does that imply? And the diversity of approaches to that, I, I feel like oftentimes a lot of the work that happens with my students happens the minute that they graduate, meaning when they have to come clean with, like, how are they going to talk about their priorities after they graduate with their families, when their families have a sense of what they would want for them, you know, the kind of conversations they have with them, and vice versa, the kinds of sacrifices that families are making now. Um, it seems that college education is so exclusive currently. Mm-hmm. And um, so in essence, like those divides and that common ground that all of them want the best for each other, but how do you actually like get to a consensus that works in a time in which there's so much demand on time, there's so much demand on being the best or being close to perfect to um, mature into success that people acknowledge as success. So I'm very invested in that in their coming of age as, people with college degrees mm-hmm. and as people who are not understood fully with regards to all of what they've already experienced in a short trajectory of time with all of the different um, approaches to immigration um, that are currently in place. So I'm very, very committed to a, to a conceptualization, to a research method that's very interdisciplinary, that's very honest with the hard work of what it means to actually like benefit from the college education nowadays and to have that benefit your family and the accountability that comes with all of that. Um, so I'm very intrigued by that. I, I feel like I have to write, I have to do something on this because I spent so much time working with students on this undertaking in mm-hmm. different ways. You know, so it's always like they're very, very promising students have been done so much and still it's so hard to go home, you know. Right. And so, so that's, that's where a lot of like right now where my energy is. Of course, as academics, I always have a ton of things and different options and projects. Right. So I really want to make sure that I, I, I give it a good a good try to right. try to get you know something there where I feel that will be helpful to generations of students as they're like coming into their own. You know, with all of the different um, uh, the very 
difficult conversations that need to happen, but there's not enough of a historical common ground to have mm-hmm. and why that's the case. So that's where I'm at right now, at least for the summer. So we'll see. Well, thank you for sharing that. I definitely look forward to what's going to come out of this. I mean, that's that's a deep interest to myself, you know, both my the students that I work with and how I can be a better you know teacher and, and educator for them and a mentor in their lives, but at the same time, learn from them. And it seems that's what, you know, that's what strikes me from, from your, your comment, that you are deeply committed to learning from your students and that you view teaching, teaching as this multifaceted and, and two-way process where really you and your students are learning from each other and you're trying to, you know, benefit those that are coming after them with this knowledge that you're gaining. So thank yeah, you for that. Yeah, thank you so much. This was such a great experience. And I applaud you for, like, making this possible. And oh, for investing in time of bringing this format to life. Um, it's very, like, it's, it's a luxury. And I think as a Chicano Latino study scholar historian, like, it's something that, you know, we don't get offered or get to do very often. So I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your careful consideration of the book and, and the history and, and for being such a great colleague. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Again, thank you for your time. Okay, bye. All right, bye. Thanks again for tuning in to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel, and you've been listening to my conversation with Ana Elizabeth Rosas, author of the new book, Abrazando el Espíritu, Bracero Families Confront the U.S.-Mexico Border, published by the University of California Press in 2014. If you'd like to reach me, you can do so at newbooksinlatinostudies at gmail.com. Feel free to send me your thoughts or comments about this interview, past interviews, or even suggestions for future ones. Thanks again.